played once, then. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Played them. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. But yeah, how are you doing? You good? Yeah, man. I've got a bit of a cold. Um, a few weird things. I had one little adventure where we got home from our Saturday morning walk and it was snowing ready to go inside get you get some dry socks and all of that have a cup of tea very ready to come inside with Marta and the doggy stuck the old key in the lock snapped off immediately and we're just locked out with the key snapped in and um, to a classic in, coming on it was well it, it was a pure Jimmy and Sheppy like a side project script which and, and, it, and yeah we were like well we instantly got in touch with the the locksmith, who are you and how did you get in here? I'm a locksmith and I'm the locksmith. And we got him and he said, I'll be 40 minutes. It's going to be really expensive, but that's what you get from emergency call out. So he quoted us this extortionate price. He said, we'll be there in 40 minutes. We need cash. Luckily, we had phone, we had cash machine card. So we went back out. Bushka didn't know what was going on, but he was loving it. We got the cash, went for a slightly longer walk came back, the guy was exactly 40 minutes, he was a bit scared of the dog, and said, get him over there, whilst I break down your door, and we're like, okay, and then he did it, and he said, do you want a new lock, so that's probably a good idea, so we did that, and then he left, and Bonker was okay, so that was a little adventure, and you know, in the mornings, often, I'll go out at seven, just for about 10 minutes with him, to do his morning poo and stuff, whilst I'm out, Marta goes to work, so I come back, I don't ever have my wallet or my phone because it's just seven o'clock, just that before I've even had a shower or anything. So if that happened, and it so easily could have, that it, the key snapped on like a, a, a random Tuesday morning, I would have had to have run with the dog after Marta and try and catch her before she got to the tram. But if I didn't make it, I, you know, I know roughly where she works. I didn't know where her office was specifically. I've never been to an office. So I'm fucked and I would have like a lesson in less than an hour. And I just, be, it would, would have been so horrible. So I'm just so happy that if it was going to happen, which it was just a Democles trick going on all the time, when it did happen, it was in the best possible circumstance. So thank fuck for that. And I didn't really need a poo because that could have been awkward as well. <laughs> oh, Sheppy. So that's my life. I love like, because no one knows what a big softy Calabos is. You could really leverage that sometimes as well with a, you know, extra call out yeah. for, a, for a speedy. Okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just hope really your, your service is snappy and no, no one else has to be, if you catch my drift, <laughs> Pavel. Yeah, full on. It's good stuff, man. Um, um, can I tell you else something, actually, whilst we're on a little flow? We watched over this last weekend um, no Time to Die, and it was the first time we had seen it since the cinema and, and since our bubble. So that's like over a year ago now, right? Um, so it was like a year and a chunk ago. 
so that was interesting seeing it for the second time have you seen it since the cinema no it's very, very it's, it's of course it's a different experience because it's like you see it for the second time i know exactly what's going to happen i know what i like about it i know what i don't like about it i know everything i haven't really forgotten anything about it and i knew that my you know i went in there again open and we did it over like a Sunday, so we were little breaks and stuff, and did this chunky film, and did it like that, and it was very nice. Um, but I, you know, it, it didn't change my mind. You know, it was, the good bits are good, but everything negative that we talked about is so true and so shit. I did catch um, Q opening up a drawer, and there's like a tea set in there, and he's like, "Whoops, wrong one," and closes it again. And I remember, I think I missed that the first time, or it just washed over me. Um, but I but you mentioned that and so yeah so I saw that this time and you know it's 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 fine what I think it is is there are like five Daniel Craig films but I think what should we should give it there's a there's a, a kink in the matrix because there should be about 12 Daniel Craig James Bond films first one Casino Royale 2006 last one No Time to Die 2020 or whatever and it's like but all the ones in between like in between Quantum of Solace and Skyfall, there are like four films where he has James Bond adventures. Then there's Skyfall and he's older now. And then there's like one in between that and Spectre, maybe. And then he goes back to work. You know, after Skyfall, you've got to, you've got to have like another, because he's like, are you going, ready to go back to work, 007? I certainly am, Ray Fiennes. And then immediately in Spectre, he's like, I bloody quit. So yeah, you need like another five films between those two cunts. And then maybe another couple in between and before No Time to Die. And then you're like, well, the interconnecting story ones of the Daniel Craig era are actually a bit shit, but the ones which are just standalone in, the, in between those ones, those bits, those ones are great. And we just happen to live in a world where we don't have those ones. <laughs> and we're just like, oh no. And it's like, oh, imagine living in a world where you've only got like the big story ones. Oh, what a load of shit. So we're, we, we've drawn the short straw cosmically on that one. <laughs> I but amazing, Shepley. I was actually on tenterhooks there for a bit as you started that. I was really interested in whether it had changed your mind, but um, but actually almost kind of reassured that it hasn't. If you know what I mean. That that. But but I think um, I watched uh, just interesting side curio to that curio. I watched Bullet Train the other day, and oh, yeah. uh, with and, and Aaron Taylor Johnson is a bigger character than you'd expect him to be in that movie. For oh. and um, and and plays his role it's not he's not funny when the film thinks he's being funny which is a shame and you know but, but he's actually quite good as his sort of guy ritchie style gangster type character and he does bring some chops to it that are different to what we've seen in say kick ass or godzilla and i think um he's uh he's the one to watch isn't he according to the media at the moment for the new bond and i i, I don't know like on the strength of that bullet train performance I don't, I don't know, like it's, yeah. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, I wouldn't have anything against that necessarily. I'd rather, you know, yeah, I'd rather that because he's different to Craig. I don't want another bulky bond. I want another streamlined bond. I hear that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know. Fresh I, enough, Sheppy. I, I, I salute your energy levels, man, because the, the thought of No Time to Die Again is exhausting to yeah. me, like, exhausting. And even the thought yeah. of the Bond right now is quite an exhausting prospect. Like, if they're going to keep 
with the overwriting of it. They mustn't. The, yeah. If, you know, they just do, do one film every two years. Each film is two hours long. Every two years, two hours long. Uh, it doesn't have to be a big, bulky epic. It doesn't have to be things on saving the world. It can be large-ish, mid to large scale, but nothing crazy and just have a good old action and have it, frankly, kind of in the tone of Brosnan, where it's a little bit of more, but also he's got a hard edge. But of course, it's not 90s and it's not Brosnan smug. And so, but just have that kind of, that that should be the, the basic tone for the next Bond. And have it just like, yeah, every two years, bonk, 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 do it. Doesn't have to be like these huge, huge mega epics. And then maybe on the fifth one, then you can go huge. But do it like Dr. No and From Russia with Love, are both fairly small comparatively, slowly, you know, go bigger, which is the Bond formula anyway. So, hurrah, no time to die, some horrendous shit, some absolutely just awful shit, but most of which I did remember, but so weak. And Rami Malek has nothing to do. It's so, it's just loads of little scenes put together and, it, and there's no sort of emotional connectivity. It just takes you through it. It's like this happens and this happens. Anna de Armis pops up, is great, has a great lovely scene, but it's totally unconnected to anything else. And then she's like, bye. It's just like one scene after another and there's no interconnecting flow. So there you go. Take that to the bank. Oh, but yeah. I do like the song. <laughs> I officially like the song. Yeah, nice. Um, Billy Eilish, wasn't it? Is that right? Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, nice man. Now listen, Sheppy, of all the bloody podcasts and all the bloody world, you <laughs> walk into mine, and actually, wow. I'm jumping the gun. I'm jumping the gun. I should say, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome <laughs> to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. And I can only apologise. <laughs> <laughs> we are the What If Movie Podcast for movie sequels, prequels to existing beloved classics. And holy moly, do we have a classic on our hands today, Sheppy, because you have uh, set us a seminal text, my friend. We do say classic a lot, and usually that means like 80s classic type thing, um, which is no less classic, but then there's also classic you know, TM, inverted commas, classic in capitals. And this is a classic. Yes. Uber caps, caps, bold, italic underline. Yes, underline. Yeah. yeah, this is actually the most intimidating one you've ever said, I think, Sheps, and, and or I. Yeah, yeah. It's mega. Nice. Like, how, how, how do you build upon the, maybe the perfect ending to one of the most perfect movies? Yeah. With, with perfect quotes, almost every line is a bloody zinger. Yeah, anyway. To it's be true. Sure. Well, the film is Casablanca, we should probably say. I mean, <laughs> people listening to this, I guess, would know. But it should be said, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, again, I, yeah, I, it just sort of popped in there. And it was, a, you know, I did re-watch it, and it was a pleasure. And it is a very well-made film. I mean, <laughs> that is a kind of a dirt statement. Damn it, it is a really well-made film and it's slick and it's quick and it's very, you know, it's very well shot and the camera is very fluid for like 1942. It's very, you know, the camera moves around and it's very smoothly edited. The pace is great. Um, each scene leads to the next scene. You've got amazing characters. You despise me, don't you? Everyone you could wish for. I always forget how quickly he dies as well. He doesn't do much. He 
but um, I love it. So, yes, um, Casablanca, Jimmy, Casablanca. What's your um, take on, on the whole thing? You like it? I mean, it's it's always up there in the list, but it is refreshing that one of those films that is often cited in the top five of like best films ever, it is actually really good. Yeah, I hear you, Chef. Or do you disagree and you think it sucks? <laughs> Absolutely not. I haven't had a chance to revisit, but I did watch it in the last two years, which is a, 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 a different sort of uh, answer to what I normally give the stock 20. But I was... Honestly, Shempi, I love this movie. When I, I'll just give you my first ever impression of it, and I've just got to lay this down. You know, I, I, as as you're my sort of movie therapist in this podcast too, Sheps. But like, this was a real like, not my proudest moment. But I remember getting. I can't tell you what the Lego was, but I had a Lego set that I got for Christmas, and Casablanca nice. was on the telly. This must be, I want to say. 1985. Let's go. No, no, no. Wow. I think I'm older. I think I'm spoiled bratter. Hang on. I think I'm 12. Let's just say I'm 12 years old. And my mum right. is like, Jimmy, you've got to watch this bloody movie. It's amazing. You're a movie fanatic. You and that Sheppy keep tearing around talking movies. If you want to talk movies, you better bloody watch this one. And I was like, uh, whatever. So I started making my Lego in front of the telly, being a real like, God, I, so I feel hard. so ashamed. Um, and, you know, within about 10 minutes, my head was turned. My head was turned, Sheppy. And I, I, I ended up watching it and loving it back there. But I, oh, I well, what a, that's a happy ending. I thought the whole story would be little snotty Jimmy being little Lord Fauntleroy with his back to the TV, being like, Yabu sucks to you too, bogey. <laughs> I flick my bogeys at you, sir. So, but no, magically, in a Spielbergian moment, your attention was caught and your eyes lit up. And your mouth starts to mouth around like, here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> just transforms. Weeping. Just weeping at the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, perhaps I'm, I'm definitely underselling how much of a yeah, boo sucks to you I was in the first 10 minutes. I really was a yeah, mm. boo sucks to you. I, I ruined the opening. Everyone probably had to rewatch the opening. Yeah, yeah. I was throwing wow. bricks at the screen and then uh, wow. I took them back. But the, probably the principal reason, Sheppy, is that I, I fell in love with Captain Louis Renault. I, he's one of my favourite all-time movie characters. I don't know if the movie hits my top ten list. It's up there as a wonderful movie, but I, I think if I had a list of movie characters like Evs, like he would be in the top ten list, maybe. I, I really love him, I think. He's just mad. Well, how lovely. I don't know, because it's funny, because he doesn't normally come up, but I really dig that, because he is a very cool character. He reminds me, as I'm sure he reminds you, Jimmy, of Garak, as played by Andrew Robinson, the Cardassian quote-unquote tailor on Deep Space Nine, who is also a very much a John le Carré-esque character. But um, he looks like Reigns, and he, he's got the same sort of like sly fox disposition as well, and sort of working sort of like in the shadows a little bit. That's good uh. stuff. And, and what's your first check? Because it wasn't with me, like, as far as I know, unless no. you were there like, trying to dodge Lego bricks. <laughs> no, that's true. I guess we never watched Casablanca together, I, I guess. Um, I don't know the first time I saw it, actually, Jimmy. I really don't. I don't know if I saw it by myself or my own volition. Uh, if it was on TV and young Sheppy was like, I should probably check this out. Or if it was later and it was like at college or something in here and we watched it. But I don't know. I honestly don't know. And either is it possible 
but I was always open to it. I mean, I was quite pretentious when I was like about 16. I did go and see Citizen Kane at the Odeon um, when, when I had the chance. So I certainly wasn't, you know, avoiding seeing Casablanca. So maybe it was on BBC Two one Christmas and I watched it on like the early 90s or something. I don't know if I was as young as a Jimmy Snotnose Lego man, but maybe. <laughs> Nonetheless, I did see it over the years, but I don't know when the last time I had seen it. And maybe it's a real Jimmy wannabe and it's like a good 20 years ago. I honestly don't know. I really don't know. But we watched it about a week ago and it's great, as I said. And nothing really surprised me. I guess I did sort of make a few notes, which I'll, I'll have a little look at in a moment. And just like little observations and thoughts and also some facts that I did just to have a little a little fact checky research trivia stuff. Um, <laughs> I did but I liked Google it. Two ships because I had to like just teaser. I haven't got a trailer moment for you, but teaser for the future pitch. Like this is a very complicated one to pull together for me in terms of when to do it, what to set, how to do it, how to pull it together. Who was still alive when to do a sequel at a certain time, etc. So uh, I, I, yeah. I found some bits and pieces that were interesting too. So it'll be interesting to see what you've got. Yes, to well, I'm interested um, in what direction you're going to go, certainly. And that's the other thing. If I hadn't rewatched this film, what I came up with would be totally, totally different. Because, yeah, well, I'll, and I'll get into that. But I, I did really like it. And like I said, I like all the main characters. In terms of Bogey, um, I'm a big fan. And we, Marta and I, watched a whole bunch of noir films like a couple of years ago, but that included a couple of bogeys, including Bogey's Vulcan. I forget what the other one was, the big something. In any case, he's cool. What's your take on... I love him, man. He's, he is cool. You're right. I mean, how can you be... How can you get away with the shortening of your name to be Bogey, and it worked, <laughs> and it still works. Yeah. He's the coolest He's so cool. He's so cool. Yeah. I, I love him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have had a thing seen... I wrote down. Oh, go ahead. Have I oh, seen... yeah, go on. Well, have you seen many other bogeys? Yeah, I... <laughs> when I was doing film studies, we definitely watched some noirs. I'm trying to remember, was it the Maltese Falcon? We probably watched yes. I haven't written any of this down, but I seem to remember really enjoying that one. And, I um... always get Big Sleep mixed up with other big things, but I think it's the Big Sleep, but that's that but he was in that with Laurel McCool as well. Nice. Pretty great. Yeah. What a dude. And by the way, Chef, you had something I wrote down. <laughs> You're not going to like this, but who cares? We are, as we sit here recording this podcast, older than Bogey was when he filmed Casablanca. Wow. Well, you know, <laughs> you know what? It, it upsets me more. The fact that we're older than... Uh, Norm Peterson, we're like considerably older than Norm Peterson from Cheers. Um, that's much more upsetting. That, that we're significantly older than Hans Gruber is upsetting. Um, in terms of this, Bogey always looked old and he was weird, man. I saw him at the cinema in The African Queen and that was in the 60s, I think. And he is like, I mean, look, he was ill and so on, but still, he looked old when he was young and when he was old, he looked old. So, um, so yeah, good old Bogey. He, he, you know, everyone said he wasn't actually very attractive, but he just had 100% raw charisma. It was just cool. And, uh, he, and he was short and ugly, but he just pulled it off. It was great. And he has that dual thing here, doesn't he, of being kind of macho and vulnerable at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's a really yeah. amazing 
thing he treads for this movie is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, he started off with lots of success in Hollywood as gangsters and stooges and second in commands and stuff like that. And it's cool that he kind of broke free of that. Got it. I guess you know the perfect hard-boiled, you know, walking the line between dark and light anyway, that sort of you know, noir anti-hero was perfect anyway. So yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, I've seen a bunch, but a lot of them were ages ago. But I think generally um, he was always consistently excellent. And I read the David Niven books and they were friends and they went fishing and shit. Oh, he that's was so cool. nice. Yeah. And they even went fishing before Niven was famous. He literally was just working to get money and he's working like Forrest Gump on a fishing boat. Bogey just came on it. Like, hey, and they sort of got on well. And then like a year later, Niven was successful was at the Oscars and living the dream. And Bogey was like, hey, man, weren't you on that fishing boat last year? Like, yeah, man, look, I've made it. And they're like, oh, nice. And they just became friends for their life. So it's really nice. Oh, I like that. That's I love it when, like, random people, friends in Hollywood that you don't realise yeah. really makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, totally. And it might, must be said that apparently, according to legend, Humphrey Bogart was friends with Sinatra and all of those dudes. And after a big night of drinking and gambling and having a great time, they were all just like stooped with like, you know, all the cigar stale air hanging in the air and everything. And just this stink. And it was like six in the morning or whatever. And Lauren Bacall, who's of course with Bogart, came downstairs and like, you know, pulled open the curtains. All this light comes in and all these like, you know, lounge lizards are just there in their tuxedos with all undone, just like, wow, with like, you know, half gone out cigars with massive ash in their mouth and all that. And she said, apparently, oh my God, it's like a dirty rat pack in here. And that's where rat pack came from. That's amazing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bogey was a part of it. So it's worth a shout out. That's so cool. I love it, man. There's a magic to that, isn't there? Like, you know, I don't know, like, people say, you know, Tom Hanks is the the, the latter-day Jimmy Stewart or whatever, and, like, yes. is, is Harrison Ford the latter-day Bogey? Kind of. You know, it's the kind of the Because thing. of Han Solo and mm. a little bit of Indy, then yes. And he did play the Bogart role in the Sabrina Fair remake, Sabrina. Um, so, and everyone at the time said he shouldn't do that. Um, so, Yes, I think he is. He, he's a bit of, yeah, he's got tiny shades. You know, they, they go back to like a little bit. Think of 90s Ford. I think a tiny bit of Cary Grant, that sort of thing. He would be absolutely a Hitchcock leading guy if time, you know, meshed them together. Um, yeah. He's absolutely of that, of that every man ilk. So yeah, yeah, a bit of a, a, a Henry Fonda as well. As Harry. Good old Harry. Um, yes. So, so good old, good old, all of that. Was there any other thing about the film that you wanted to mention? Good. Well, let me say this, chefs. I just made some notes, not having done a rewatch, but um, there's 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 a big question I want to ask you, but I'll come to that in a minute. Um, just, I mean, look, the bloody the quotes. I don't know if you've got anything on the quotes there too, but it's it is ridiculous. There's about twenty. They're just in the lexicon, right? You know, and, and yet, in... also, of course, play it again. Sam is never said. It's a real elementary, dear Watson, <laughs> or beam me up, Scotty. It's never ever said. That's crazy. Yeah. To love it, 
it's just and 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 it's it's the least of the quotes in my view as well by the way even yeah. like the play itself you know but it's a beautiful scene it's an extraordinary scene like that moment though when she when she's just listening to sam play but i just uh the <laughs> the you ran up major strass has been shot round up the usual suspects come on inspired yeah. one of the great movies too but you know come on amazing and then i uh i love the just the whole speech to Ilsa at the end is just, it's like getting peppered with quotes, isn't it? Like, you know, from yeah. the pond of three people down around a whole hill of bees in this world, and here's looking at you, kid. It yeah. almost feels overwhelming now to rewatch it because the, the, the quote, it just, it, it's almost, it's too much, you know, it, it, it almost, yeah. it's, I'm not saying the pathos run from it, it's still beautiful, and the gesture of it rings forever, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's just, um, it's tricky because it looks like it's a, a whole string of cliches now, doesn't it? Unfortunately, because we just know the lines so well. But it's just but because it's so pure. I mean, I yeah. I mean, maybe some people would have you know bump up against that these days. Whenever people watch classic films with Gunpowder Mexican, someone saw like here's Johnny. People, you know, oh yeah, I wouldn't be at all terrified. Um, so yeah. like, oh yeah, I saw that in the Simpsons. So yeah, I can see it, but I think you know, I mean, it was fine. It's like anything where you watch it, it's got a million quotes, even if they're not famous quotes. I watch something like Boogie Nights and I'll be like, oh my God, because that was a film that I quoted with certain people at university for at least three years nonstop. And I'd forgotten loads of the quotes. And so then you watch Boogie Nights and you're like, oh my God. So on a personal level, you have the same thing. Then, so it works like that for me with, with Casablanca, for example. And that whole ending is amazing. And did you know that um, they used loads and loads of fog because the plane wasn't real and it looked really shit and it was made out of cardboard because <laughs> of wobbling. And all of the crew technician, like the airport people, wandering around on the on the airport on the on the runway, they were all midgets, but just to give like false perspective to make the plane look bigger. Uh, so there you go. There That's you go. Amazing. Like you said, it moves so snappily and it does have loads of iconic moments, but they do work on their own merit. It is like that scene is a really good scene. And the journey that Rick goes on, where he starts off really broken and then he gets really bitter and he acts like my, my lecturer at uni, Mike Punt, I'm not joking. Mike Punt said that, oh, he showed us the clip when he's talking to Sam just before the Paris flashback. And Mike Punt said like, he's acting like a big girl. Um, and it's, he is very whiny and stuff. And then you see him really angry in Paris and that's great. And then you see him thumping the table and being so angry, such a teenager and being like, being really bitchy about it. And then being the bigger man. And then you've got her pulling the gun on him and you're like, oh shit. But then it's like, no way, man. And then maybe they have sex in that moment and it's ambiguous. That's the question. That's the, that's question. the question. I choose to believe they do, but you don't, it's yeah. not necessary. Um, it depends, I don't know what the intent I'm assuming the director would have had it if he could have, but she's married and they can't even say I love you necessarily. Um, I thought something because in that in the in the rules is it haze at that point in the 40s? But yeah, um they they couldn't because she's married to someone else. So that's all well and good. Um but yeah, it, it moves along at a clip and then is he trusted, is she trustworthy? Can we trust Louis? what's going on and then it's like it, yeah it comes together it's like a dangerous exotic world uh, it's a bit like Moss Eisley and I like it yeah, yeah. good <laughs> I wrote so down good. some stuff Do I it. did write that 
Well, Bergman, um, Bergman walks the tightrope. She's great, but like yeah. between really loving, I don't think she's yeah. more beautiful on screen. I don't know, but my she's God. wonderful. Well, and she walks the tightrope between. She genuinely, the character does love both men. She mm. just genuinely does, uh, but she's not a slag. I don't believe she comes across that way. Um, it's it's legit. Um, and the key is when he gets everyone to sing in defiance, you know, Laszlo in that room against the Nazis and her face is just like pure love as she looks at Laszlo risking his life to do this huge thing, which is so risky in, the, in, the, you know, in this battle and it's so cool. Um, and in this aspect, you know, you see she is in love with him. Um, and I think the point of the scene also shows that her love for him is as strong and valid as hers for Vic and one does not cancel out the other. Um, and I heard that the writer later acknowledged uh, when we began, he wrote, he said, we didn't have a finished script. Ingrid Bergman came to me and said, which man should I love more? And I said to her, I don't know, play them both evenly. And you see, we didn't have an ending, so we didn't know what was gonna happen. And so <laughs> that, that's amazing. It's like Die Hard, where they just make it up as they went along. Why not? No one knew that the film, when they made the film, when it first came out as well, the reviews were like, you know, not as good as that bogey film from last year. And everyone, when they made it, just assumed it was going to be instantly forgotten, like so many of those films were. Just another studio cranking it out. But then it did get legs pretty quickly, and then it got Oscars and shit. And there was a sequel, Mooted. Did you hear about that? Oh, I didn't. I didn't really. I wanted to stay away from that stuff a bit, Sheppy, because I, I, I was a bit. I, I, I took a while to get my inspiration here. I didn't want to like replicate it. Yeah. But yeah, go on. Sorry, man. What was it? Yeah. I'm not going to say what it is yet. Um, but needless to say, I did my own thing. But then I read for some interesting tidbits. Yeah, I'm interested. But I, I, I it, there's no great big detail. What I will say is, it was going to come out a couple of years later. And but it just you know, none of the stars wanted to do it, and it just fell apart on having the script. It was very good. And but for like a hot second, like we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it, and then they did. And it, oh, but it was good, you were gonna find out that Rick and Louie were like secret agents the whole time. Oh, <laughs> so maybe it's for the best they didn't do it. Yeah, it's like that amazing Simpsons where you see the alternative ending of Casablanca and she comes down on a parachute and blows up Hitler who's hiding in the piano. And she goes, it's amazing. Oh my God, it's as good as that. So, so they, <laughs> um, I like all of that. Oh, by the way, there was also, there were loads of adaptations. It was originally a stage play which wasn't produced, and then that was adapted into the film, but with loads and loads of differences. And there was also a 30-minute radio play, uh, like a year or two later, with the three leads, with Bogart and, and Bergman and, and Maslow. And Truffaut, uh, in the 70s, Francis Truffaut was offered the chance to direct a remake in 1974. He said, fuck off. And apparently Madonna, wanted to do a remake around 2008 set in modern day Iraq so there you go and the original play everyone comes to Rick uh, everyone comes to Rick's uh, it was never produced but served as, as inspiration but loads of stuff has heavily changed uh, it was produced in Rhode Island uh, after the film's release it, came, it, it sort of came out again in 1946 but it flopped it was brought back in London in 1991 and again flopped. 
and a Japanese all-female musical version was produced in 2009 and ran for over a year. That's amazing. So that's nice. I would watch that. Uh, I mean, I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> um, in 85, there was an unofficial, and in 98, there was an official uh, sequel novels written. Um, the latter one, the official one in 98, picked up immediately after the film left off and also went into Rick's backstory. But those, both those books flop. Um, so there you go. Oh, and Paul Renfield, um, who plays Laszlo, was apparently a massive prima donna. According to Bogey, he was a prima donna. And, um, and Laszlo, uh, Paul Renfield, um, he wasn't popular with the other cast members and the crew didn't love him. Um, so there you go. But he said that Bogey was unprofessional. Or, no, he said he was a mediocre actor. And uh, Bogey said about him that he was a prima donna. But I think he was probably a bit, maybe a bit method or something. I don't know. Bogey apparently said he's looking at you, kid, to Bergman between takes when teaching her how to play poker. And it was incorporated. Yeah. Um, and the famous last line as he's walking away talking to Louis uh, was dubbed. Uh, it was dubbed in like a, a month after filming was done with some alternatives considered. Now let's go back to our home planet or something. <laughs> um, um, what I'll also just say is this, by giving up his chance to be with her with no strings attached and everything, and by doing the right thing, choosing to be a hero and to you know, let her go off with Laszlo, not only made Bogey a pure hero, it also forces um, Bergman to live up to her idealism by choosing the option that was best for the globe and, you know, not just two insignificant players, hill of beans, etc. Oh, and Don Siegel, who went on to direct many films, including the first Dirty Harry film, uh, directed the second unit montages. I even saw his name in the opening credits. I'm like, Don Siegel, I wonder if that could be him in 1942. And as it turns out, it was. Oh, no. um, so Michael Kurtz, Curtis, uh, directed very good in west germany an uncut version was finally made available in 1973 uh, a version was released with all references to the war cut out and in it uh, it was dubbed in that laszlo he had escaped from jail uh, so there you go there you bloody go those those are my little things that we found out i love it chefs good googleage i love it wonderful i i learned some stuff there i didn't know <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I, I just so I, I like your uh, I agree with you on the sleeping together point. I think that happened. She plays off both of them beautifully. I had one quote I didn't mention before we get to pitches, which is just <laughs> and it's the moment I, I fell in love with uh, Captain Renault. But it's just simply, you know, I'm shocked to hear there's been gambling in here. But then someone comes up to <laughs> you're winning, sir. That's <laughs> just a really oh, thank show. you. <laughs> um, but yeah man it's, um, I'm so glad you didn't say the last line of the movie as well because you know the, it, it's the only time I've ever done this pod and known how we're going to sign off should be obviously so uh, yeah we'll oh, that's that for the nice. last second yeah absolutely I'm probably um, going to accidentally say it now it's going to be really awkward <laughs> but I'm ready I'm ready to pitch man I'm ready well I'm ready to hear your pitch so uh, yeah well, are you ready to jump all right, Jimmy. Now, I've done. I've gone about this in a slightly different way to usual, um, so you'll have to bear with me. But I tried to play this one pretty fast and loose. 
uh, like you were saying earlier, yeah, like I've, I've been sort of like making mine bigger and bigger and bigger, which is all lovely. But I sort of try, you know, occasionally I'll remember, you know, for our first pitch with the Goonies, I just had my notes just as a backup, but I did it all from my head. So with that in mind, I haven't done that. I'm not a madman, but um, I sort of tried to snap it back. So it's much more vague. It's much more of a pitch, frankly, instead of like a full-on treatment. But I've also sort of gone off on one in other ways. So um, as always, just indulge my happiness. Uh, that makes me very happy. <laughs> That's all I want from life. Play it, Shepi. So I like it. Play it like you um, used to. Nice. So I don't know how much information to give straight away, but I will just jump in. And there is a trailer moment, but I'll, I'll wait until we just get there. So basically, I've gone for Casablanca 2, and I've called it Brazzaville. Um, how's that? Yeah. Are you familiar? Do you know that? Did you go well, in that where direction? They go, isn't it? Is that where they go yes. at the end? Yeah, yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I was wondering if that's what you were going to call yours. There was a spoiler. Oh. You didn't call yours Brazzaville, but that's what I was wondering. We were going to go. So, yes, <laughs> that's where they're huge, going. Jeffy, I'll tell you, mine's called Return to Casablanca. So oh, nice. So. Oh, very nice. Okay, well, that's tasty. Oh, I love it. Oh, 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 how tantalizing. So, anyway, mine is called Brazzaville. And by the way, the sequel I discovered, which was going to be made, was called Brazzaville. So, okay, but there's. I'm, we were watching the film and they say, okay, Rick, now we have to go to Brazzaville to help the French resistance. But I'm watching again. Well, obviously that's where I'm going with this. It's set up right there. So even though my mine is called Brazzaville and it's, that's what it was going to be called, that that's just, there's no avoiding it. Mine would always be called Brazzaville. Um, so there you go. It's mine is um, two years later. So it's 1944. Um, now it's basically the further adventures of Rick and Louie. Um, instead of the sort of the dry desert, you've got the jungle, you've got the wet heat. This is North Congo um, Brazzaville. Um, so it's it's that sort of contrast, different environment. I'm seeing dark passages, hidden tribes, secret smugglers, double agents, double crosses, twists, turns, babe of the week, taking the fight to them. And what I mean by that is at the end or in the last you know in the in the last section of Casablanca Rick really gets his shit together and he shakes it off and after she's pulled the gun on him and then he, you know it's all come out and maybe they've had sex then he's like right fuck this shit and then he goes goes and gets them so I will just say now my approach to this universe this could be absolutely Casablanca 2 aka Brazzaville comes out two years after Casablanca you can totally take what I'm about to pitch as that. What I'm, but, but in my universe, there's an alternative universe, which I'm going to lean into a bit. And that is that this, Brazzaville, is the first film. And then they make a series of like Rick and Louis adventure films and, you know, twists and turns and so on. And then at a certain point, they do Casablanca as the prequel. Um, and then, and so that, and so that, and that's kind of like Rick begins in terms of how he, becomes what we know him as with his whole let's go get him type of approach which he has at the end so with that in mind feel free to interpret what i'm about to say both ways um so it's um again it's in sort of vague sweeping terms and going into the the idea it's like the republic of the congo and it's a capital city um i'm seeing like um the french resistance gathers its forces that's what they and that happened 
1944, so it's historically on point. That's something else just quickly worth saying about Casablanca is it was made live, as it were. You just sort of watch it, you go, Nazis, occupied France. But then you're like, this was made in 1942. Yeah. It's like current. Um, and that's sort of worth, you know, taking a moment to consider. Um, so that's exciting. Um, so there's, um, I also, in that, there's like a relatively, it's like about 30 year old railway line raz running from Brazzaville south all the way through the Congo, um, all the way down. And so I'm sort of, that, that features heavily where, I, where I'm going with this. Uh, the city, by the way, it's like a commune that was separated from other regions of the Republic in North Africa. It's surrounded, uh, the city is surrounded by like large plains, but then you've also got the town, which is relatively flat, situated downriver. Then you've got the Congo and numerous rapids known as Livingstone Falls, which prevents navigation upriver. So once you get to a certain point, you can't go back. So I'm leaning into that sort of heart of darkness, point mm -hmm. of no return. You can get there, but then you have to go, only go deeper or stay put, but that's it, those are your options. So that's nice. Um, escaping freedom fighters, you know, being driven south, um, being, you know, being led to safety via the river, that sort of thing. But again, it's sort of like a cut off city, Brazzaville. And I'm leaning into that as well. Um, so that's all right. I think that's that sort of sums up. So the pre-cred here, by the way, it's, of course it's Bogey, but it's not Bergman. Um, I'm not bringing them back together. And I don't want to step on if you go in that direction, but the way I'm tackling this is kind of, for me, the eye of the duck of Casablanca is that they don't end up together. And then that's sort of like, they're both better people because of it and they both make a sacrifice. I, I completely agree, Sheppy. This is one of those biggest of your don't undermine the whole point of the first one. We got there. We got there. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So with that in mind, I haven't done that. So I actually haven't cast this. And people out there, you know, you could cast it with all the hot people from the 40s, really have fun with who, you know, there's like a, you know, it's got Louis and it's got Rick and everyone else are new characters. Um, and the pre-cred, is basically a large and secretive meeting being held in this in the city. Um, and I see again, you know, it's all set at night and it's all dark shadows and mysterious and treacherous and lots of hookah smoke, even if that's not historically accurate. Um, big meeting being held in the cellar of an old inn. There's smoke and heated arguments fill the air and a, a map is laid out on a table, a lot of sweaty faces and you know, argue amongst themselves and stuff. And this, we learn this is like a massive meeting of lots of um, leaders of the, and heads of the French resistance for the moment in hiding, driven from their country by the Germans, of course. All these leaders and soldiers are, by definition, on the back foot. They had to leave France either because they were exposed, rooted out, now heavily hunted on the run by the, from the Nazis, or at the very least, a major plan has gone badly wrong for various personnel and they needed to fall back and regroup, and that's why they all ended up in Brazzaville. Outside in the dark alleys surrounding the inn, uh, around in that area, shadows dart across walls and so on, and a cat goes Meow, and runs off, and we see a hidden raid which is being orchestrated by the Nazis, and it's about to be carried out, and we meet the captain of the patrol, Captain Muller, because why not, a disgraced Nazi ex-battalion leader who we learn was once highly regarded and decorated, 
rising fast in the ranks, and then he like lost a really important strategic position, like a town or something that he had to defend in France to the Allies, and so his punishment has been to be posted out here. So he wants to, you know, he's determined to the point of derangement to be reinstated and reclaim his previous glory. And he is leading this rage to capture the resistance leaders. And we see his informer, who's this little French teen uh, who has sold out the meeting and he confirms the place and uh, the captain double checks his men are all in place. And then he screams, you know, proper schnau, 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 and blows a whistle causing all the men and troops to swarm into the building, but they find an empty basement and the captain busts in, Mueller, and his expression is white, hot, unbelieving fury and shock. And outside we see the little kid, he's like called Lemmy. He runs off into the darkness, scampers away, and we follow him down various alleyways and he moves like a cat. And then into the inn containing the real meeting, and it's a real silence of lambs 70 years early. And in the doorway to the meeting, a man stands in the shadows and Lemmy sees him and approaches uncertainly at first, and then smiles and the man steps out of the shadows and is revealed to be Rick and he's smoking a ciggy and looking cool as fuck. And we learn that Lemmy and Rick and Louie are all working with the resistance leaders, supplying false info to the Germans and protecting this network of escapees and refugees that have come through town, whether to regroup or to escape forever. And Rick and Louie are fighting to help them do this and they also have plans for more. Because yes, um, the fire was reignited in Rick here by Elsa and so on in Casablanca. So now his blood is up and he's being very, very proactive in his fight, you know, and everything. He's not just sitting it out anymore. Um, so Louis has learned through sympathetic contacts in the French foreign police, work, officially working for the Nazis, but some of them. Um, that they, he, they've told Louis that a glut of refugees and resistance fighters are being shepherded towards Brazzaville and aim to have, uh, all the Nazis aim to have all the fish in one barrel before a massive slaughter, effectively turning the whole city into martial law, despite being apparently neutral ground. And the Nazis don't care and they're gonna just do whatever they want. There will be massive Nazi movement to wipe out the resistance leaders and everyone else in one fell swoop destroying any as well who are sympathetic uh, and to double lay waste to the innocent city and its inhabitants as collateral damage. And Rick and Louis have their blood up and after the informant passes this info on to Louis, uh, the informant though is shot in the back by a traitor in the shadows and dies in Louis's arms. And Louis is then shot and maybe winged like he's got in the arm. And he, um, but he falls down alleys and escapes from this shadowy shooter who we don't really see. Armed with this info, Louis and Rick stage a massive trap for the Nazis, doing a kind of double sting sort of angle to this film. Basically the same misdirection they've been using before, um, but now on a huge scale and it's all or nothing. There's like a like one little scene where Louis is like, it's one hell of a risk though, Rick. One false move, one wrong piece of news leaked, or one single position overtaken. One whisper caught and one mistake noticed. All this with everything on the table, everything to win and everything else left to lose. And Rick's like, yeah, we have a name for that back home. It's called gambling. And that's in the trailer. <laughs> um, 
the game is uh, get Nazi attention on one part of town where they think the meetings and so on will take place. The arrival of the refugees and freedom fighters will be on the other side of the city. And while they're distracted, they move more refugees out on this railway, on this railroad. And, and that's Rick's like master plan. You get them all on the train and get them the fuck out of here whilst the Nazis are looking elsewhere. Uh, so the main players who we've established are, of course, Rick and Louis. There's also this French resistance leader, Jean-Pierre, who's this dashing French type, um, and also his, like, his co-leader, um, this French live wire called Claudette, who lost her family to the Nazis and is brave and bold and brazen, but with a dangerous thirst for vengeance that could and does jeopardize the mission. She and Rick have a flirtatious and volatile relationship, but they are both warriors in a war and a passion and spark more than tender love. Uh, in fact, no tender love, no romance in this film. It's pure, just like they're sparking off each other. Uh, but Rick, as always, doesn't know who he can trust, and so he trusts no one. Uh, there is also uh, an angry freedom fighter who is always causing trouble and arguments, and he's, he is openly hostile to Rick and Louis all the time, and he's starting fights, and this is Jacques, um, and we are led to believe that he's going to be the traitor. <laughs> no, I mean, why not? Because um, we know someone is a traitor, and there are twists and moles, and someone's informing, and someone shoots the informant, and so we kind of go, oh, it seems a bit obvious, but maybe it's Louis. Um, not Louis, um, fucking Jacques. So, um, but a twist. I know you don't like him, Happy, by the way you say oh, it. Oh, he's a right twist, man. Yeah, no, no, forget about it. This, this guy's a dick. <laughs> but that's that's the thing, you see, because that, that, there's a twist where it revealed that he is a dick, but he is loyal and he's not a Nazi spy. And he dies on the train, fighting back the Nazi soldiers, buying time for the others to escape. So he gets to die the hero, even if he is a massive wanker. Um, on the other side, we have Captain Muller and also his second in command, who, like Rick, Muller isn't sure he can totally trust this guy, as the second has his own ambitions and an eye on Muller's job. And Muller, he ultimately lets his own corruption and paranoia get the better of him, but he's on the knife edge anyway with sanity, this dude. And he shoots the second in command in the back as he runs for the train, and collapses on the rails like Stephen Burkhoff and Octopus. And among the city locals, uh, there's a washed up RAF man as well, left over from the first war, who is now like an expat drunk, but he can be bought for a drink and Rick doesn't know where his loyalties are. Uh, but he ultimately doesn't betray Rick and he is a hero after all, getting the last refugees out, including Claudette, um, away from the advancing Nazis in, in his little plane at the end. So he saves the day and Claudette gets out okay and she's not a baddie, it turns out. Also, there are, there's an American-like sociologist and an anthropologist, husband and wife in their 40s, who came to the Congo to study indigenous population and write a thesis for his college back in the States. And we learn he is ultimately a glory hunter and only in it for the fame. But when his wife threatens to blow the whistle due to fear, he helps Rick out instead and says, no, no, we have to do the right thing. And, um, and he gets the resistance leader, Jean-Pierre, out of a sticky situation. In the second half of the film, everything has been set up, and then it's all really about Rick and Louis dealing with the info and counter-info, getting refugees um, into like, the train away from the Nazis, um, and then away to freedom um, as the noose uh, closes on the Nazi trap. 
Uh, there's, a, there's a twist and there's a double twist. At one point, we even suspect that Louis is being coaxed to work for the Nazis in order to save his family back in France. But this, we learn, has been avoided with his family gotten out by Jean-Pierre's connections. We're also not sure about Claudette, but Rick is super cynical. They do have sex and hard-hearted these days Rick is. So he's, he's all right. He doesn't trust anyone. They're okay. Um, so he's not blinded by Claudette's feminine charm. Um, and there's another possible moment of betrayal once um, Louis and Jean-Pierre and Claudette make it onto the train, but then we learn that uh, she is in on the setup and it's a double, if not triple twist about who's working for who, but Claudette's okay, she sorts it out. Um, and then we find out who the traitor was who shot the informant to begin with and has been feeding info to Mueller all along. And it's only the bloody glory hunting anthropologist dude who thought he was okay. But it's the double thing where he's set up as a cunt, but then he does like a good thing. And you go, oh, he's all right, really. And then it's a triple, he's a nasty, nasty person. <laughs> and he only went against his, uh, his wife's wish and everything and helped Rick and the others just to get in tighter with them and then to betray them all. Um, and I the entire train. The moment you said it. Well, of course he did. Yeah. He's a robber, a bloody robber. Um, but Rick has allowed for all of this, and maybe it's Louis actually who saves the day, having always been like you, and uh, he, you know, didn't trust him. And also, he says like, I always followed my father's advice. And Rick's like, Oh yeah, indeed. Never trust an American. Smart guy, your pa. A true Frenchman. So the end sees the Nazis foiled and the train moves south to freedom and Jean-Pierre and Claudette get away on the plane, fight another day. And it, you know, it's a similar thing, but maybe they're not even an item, but that, you know, it's never like, shall we stay together with Rick and her? They're just like, you know, two warriors who had sex. Good for them. But she fucks off. Maybe he's on the train and she's on the plane. Anyway, meanwhile, Rick and Louis uh, let the train get away and skip out and all of that. Mueller is either shot by Claudette or arrested in disgrace by his own men um, under his own command and he's like dragged away in disgrace. Um, as the final, um, you know, as the train disappears and the, oh no, and also as the Nazi troops then have nothing to be there for anymore. So they all start to scraggle off and to leave and it's like 1942, things are, you know, 44 at this point. So things are, you know, winding down, move away, move away. Their mission here is a failure. And also with news of American troops ready to liberate Paris, we have everyone in the city rushing around and totally ignoring Louis and Rick, who sit at a little cafe, sharing a bottle of wine, waiting for their own train, now arriving, taking them in totally the opposite direction from the escapees, instead deeper into the war-torn country for more adventures. And as the train pulls into the station for them, they pick up their little suitcases and stroll on as if out without a care in the world, ready for their next adventure with an iconic line which i don't know but i'll tell you the tagline a river above the jungle below and the enemy all around in brazzaville the difference between the price of freedom or the pain of death can rest on a whisper or a gunshot in the back exclamation <laughs> so this but really you know this is only that. yeah i love it so it's twisty turny, but this is the thing, Jimmy. So then I sort of like, so there's that. And that could be the sequel. But if we, I, I did sort of fill out the other films. So if that's the first film, and we just <laughs> assume that- You give me your Jump Street thing, come on. I'm going to give it to you. Um, so the next one is set in Shanghai, 
and it's not Nazi related. Um, and it's a new romance and a new baddie who's like a local gangster, rising kingpin. Louis isn't in it as much. And Rick now has a new ally in Frankie Tapper, a local huckster, card shark, pool champ, dice throwing, chicken fighting, ex-Navy bad boy, childhood friend of Rick's. They grew up on the streets together. And he dies at the end after betraying Rick and selling him out to the gangster man. And there's a famous, in Hollywood lore, the famous depiction of opium being shown in a major Hollywood release for the first time, quite controversial. Rick is more hardcore in this film and much more aggressive. And he actively kills like some, like three people. Two, two of them he shoots and one he forces like someone's car off the road and it like, you know, blows up. And in part, you know, to fan reaction, this is scaled back for the next part uh, where he is more the romantic uh, lead bold again. So the next one is City of Joy, Calcutta. This is set in 47, East Indian city, year that it gained an independence. Rick and Louis fall in with some smugglers, Rick thinking to start a business of import-export. Things go wrong as he and Louis discover the others are trading in humans and in a massive slave trade operation, making use of the lawless areas now that the Brits have pulled out. Anarchy rules in these badlands, and Rick and Louis must expose the ring as well as misdirect the group's leaders and their attention elsewhere. Rick finds an unlikely comrade in Trindy, the oldest daughter of a family of daughters and a rich landowner father. And she strives for independence, now her country is free, but is facing her own attacks from local corrupt law enforcement and the ever-growing army of discontents and army deserters who roam the wasteland. She and Rick find strength and familiarity in each other and end up tricking the slave trade leader into attacking the group of land pirates, opting them to have to save her land so because they would they would after her and her land and everything. Louis has meanwhile infiltrated and befriended the local landowner's tribe and now at the end brings them in as cavalry, running out all the stragglers forever, resorting to a form of law now in the area and they leave, leaving Trindy now a respected community leader, ready to continue the fight for her people. And then we have the prequel film, film four, Rick Begins, Casablanca. How did Rick become the freedom fighting Han Solo rogue of the forties? How did his heart turn to stone in the first place? And who is the mysterious Sam who is so oft mentioned in casual conversation all the way through the other films? Oh, well, as Sam used to say, or well, one time in Tangiers was Sam, but he's never ever expanded upon. And it's been going on like fan speculation, like, is he a dog? Who's <laughs> Sam? It's the last crusade opening of Rick Blaine films. So that's number four. Then number five, it's a direct sequel. Um, so right on, you know, uh, it's now Switzerland and Northern Italy with Italian villains and allies and fascists. And the war is now winding down, 1945. Um, very nice scenery, very epic romance with this Italian double agent working for Italian fascists, but she secretly helps Rick and Louis drive the remaining forces out of hiding deep in the North Italian countryside. And Rick learns how to love again, and she leaves him at the end as she has more to do, and he lets her go by putting on a brave face, and he's like, sure, get out of here, kid, I gotta run too. My ferry will be pulling out, and I doubt he'll want to wait. So, so long, knock him dead like you always do. 
and she leaves and then his face falls and his purpose evaporates. And we know that there's no ferry waiting for Rick and there's no love for Rick Blaine, at least none that lasts. And then we have the final film and it's film six and it's set in Paris, now liberated Paris, Berlin. Um, uh, I also thought one could be set in like Baghdad, but you know. Um, so this one basically uh, starts off in liberated Paris, um, moves into Germany, finishes in Berlin at the very, very end of the wars. Everyone comes in, the Americans come in. Um, and this film, probably at the, at the end, certainly in the second half, maybe even in the, the final third, this has the return of Elsa um, and Laszlo is dead and maybe he's in it and maybe he does die, ultimately becoming the ultimate martyr and the strongest version he could ever hope to be. He basically becomes a forced ghost. And Elsa is like, you see, Rick, even in death, Laszlo knew he could make the biggest difference, deliver the largest blow to the enemy. In dying, he finally became invincible. And uh, it's implied, if not full on shown, that therefore then right at the end, she and Rick get together. Um, but this film, people don't actually like it that much. It's kind of regarded by history. It's just like, ah, oh, it's a shame. And it was the first one made in colour. They could have made some of the previous sequels in colour, but they decided to keep it. But for this one, they went colour. And it's like, oh, that's a bad choice, mate. <laughs> so, and there you go. And that's my, my Casablanca. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Look, I was going to ask you, is there any room for a Laszlo also like cameo or a crossover, but you, you gave it to us. So I'm, I'm happy even if the people aren't happy. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, and listen, man, in terms of Brazzaville itself, like I can see all of that shit. So it feels like a perfect 40s studio flick. It just feels like, yeah, it's just right there, the bubble of it. It's going to move it a clip <laughs> like the original did. And like it's all really nice. And yeah, it just feels of a piece totally. I love it. Yeah, I can nice. hear the oh, clip well, dialogue in little, you know, underground <laughs> French. Yeah, it's cool. It's really cool, man. I'm very happy. We've gone totally different bloody ways. Well, actually, well, wonderful. We have and haven't in a way. Like, and I, I've also sort of, I've kind of gone off on one a wee bit too. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's so that's so cool, Sheppy. I'm really happy. Well, listen, I've got some more little bits of interesting, interesting in a bit commerce, googly yeah. bits and bits and pieces that we haven't covered, which which were not like super duper top of the pops interesting, but were things that were necessary to bring my one to life, if that makes sense. Oh, nice. So um, yeah, we could. Uh, are you ready oh God, to uh, yes, I'm ready to return ready. to Casablanca? That's my trailer oh, moment with the big voiceover. <laughs> bloody beautiful! Oh, it's sweeping as fuck. <laughs> well, as soon as you set the ships, rather than um, going movie, I I don't know why, and it sort of stayed with me, and I bloody let it munge a bit, and I kept going back to it, but I kept thinking. Rather than a movie, I see this as being like a TV thing, like almost like a TV three-part special that came out in the 80s sort of thing, you know, and that, that kind of just stayed with me for ages. I shook it off, <laughs> tried to write a sequel movie, couldn't, or at least couldn't get there, really. And, um, and then I've ended up basically calling this Return to Casablanca as a, a three-part uh, TV special 
that is wow. filmed in 1981, ready to be released in 1982 on the 40th anniversary of uh, Casablanca. And one of the liberties I'm taking with it is there was a sequel in my world that, start, that started filming. Um, and let's just call it, I don't know, perhaps just before Bogart's death um, in, in the early 50s, or whatever, but basically it was filmed in the past and they didn't quite complete filming or they abandoned the project due to creative differences or whatever. There's some lost archival footage of a sequel to Casablanca that follows a whip bit more similar to your Brazzaville. You'll find that out as we go. But what basically what has happened is the director of mine, which is John Meredith Lucas, which is the son of Michael Curtis. And oh. he may he directed a show called Mannix. I don't know that, but oh. you might know Mannix. I don't know. But... I, 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 it was never one that I saw, but I think it was along the same lines of like Scarecrow and Mrs. King and stuff. And nice, I, okay. I missed it all Rockford Files. That's what I mean. I mean. <laughs> I, I, it, it, missed, it passed me by, but just through pop culture of reference, I've heard of Mannix. Nice. I'd had heard the name too, and I'd gave it, yeah. But and he was a producer on Star Trek and the Fugitive TV show and stuff. But th nice. let's just say he has the chops to do this and carry on his yeah. father's legacy. And he has found this archival footage that maybe his dad, Michael Curtis, shot and then abandoned and has decided to do something with it, Sheps. And um, and and essentially that thing is this three three episode uh, arc. That was, as I say, filmed in 81 and uh, released in 82. So with that in mind, you're going to get um, a bit of bogey back as Rick Blaine. Um, nice. And uh, we, Ingrid Bergman is in this. She passed away in 1982. So this becomes wow. one of the last things she films. Um, we don't have Laszlo back uh, for reasons that will be explained. We do have a wee bit like bogey of Claude Rains back as Renault. Um, and then We've got Sam in it, but um, unfortunately, Arthur Dooley Wilson, um, his life would have extended to this sort of period. So I'm not going to take liberties of people's lives. I'm trying to do this real and right, Sheppy. So yeah. what I've got is Sam is in the archival footage. He is in that movie and was alive for that filming. But then for the 80s, we actually have a gentleman called Elliot Carpenter, who who is a pianist who did the the piano playing in the original movie because actually wow. Arthur Wilson wasn't a, a pianist so have you just had uber <laughs> charisma was also a legend but um, a gentleman called Elliot Carpenter um, who I don't know that he necessarily bears a, a, to he he looks similar but the point is he's going to play an older Sam anyway so you know it doesn't really you know matter too much and then we've got one key bit of casting Sheps. And I was really thinking about this as to like, who could pull this off? Who is like uber enough um, to be able to enter into the lexicon and be part of um, this, you know, and come in as an 80s actress and then be in, in a Casablanca sequel of sorts. And look, I mean, I say all of that highfalutin. You and I know a three-part TV special is going to come out and maybe do like your final colour version <laughs> and kind of be not well received and people are going to kind of disown it almost immediately. But anyway. It's, it's going to come out with a little bit of fanfare and like event TV, like roots sort of thing. Like yeah. this is this is real event stuff. And then it kind of just comes and goes and people kind of go fuck off. And then it's like a curio oddity. <laughs> it exists in Oxfam shops on like a double video 
set, you know, got Definitely a cardboard a thing set. worn out as fuck. <laughs> yeah. And it's a double video set because when you, I'm going to give you all three episodes, but the first episode actually is a bit wonky. It's too, it, the plot of it is probably too light. And so first step needs a bit of beefing at some point. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, um, so it's episodes one and two on that first cassette and uh, i love this universe jimmy so much it's so <laughs> early 80s and it's so itchy <laughs> i i really like it i really like living here <laughs> and um and then so the the extra actress the person that's coming into the fold is sigourney weaver as oh. uh, Lena Lund. I think she's got this sort of luminescence about her anyway at this point. She's yeah. super pretty. She's just broken in uh, in Alien in 79. So she's kind of hot property at this point in time. She's probably maybe four years too young, but I think we can age her up a wee bit. It's okay. Oh, four years. We can play with that. But anyway, um, so uh, I, uh, yeah, so th let's go for it then. Return to Casablanca. So this starts, Sheps, with a black and white shot. The opening, the first thing we see, black and white shot of Casablanca, that huge Hassan Mosque in Casablanca on the harbour there. And then, um, and the music is, um, you know, kind of swelling and swelling. The camera then pans to the water. We get the return to Casablanca title over the water, like in the same font or whatever. And then um, it starts to transition slowly to colour over water, pans back, and it's only gone and been a seamless, beautiful cut from John Meredith Lucas. And actually, we're now in Hawaii, specifically a different harbour, Pearl Harbour. And um, and we just hold on this. And one of the interesting things as well um, that you were talking about too, when the movie comes out and it's not that big a deal, it's just not a studio pick or whatever, um, and it just happens to coincide or at least come out around the same time as Pearl Harbor's attacked and the Americans start getting interested in the war and like obviously enter the war and all that kind of thing. And it just I think it sort of got a bit of a bump with that too, the, the original movie. So it's kind of and I'm leaning into that a little bit here. And anyway, we're in we're in uh, Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Um, we, we, we then, you know, kind of pan to a house where a, uh, a young woman is um is juggling breakfast she's dressed kind of pretty smart kind of interview smart this is sigourney weaver as lena um like i'm gonna call sigourney a leader <laughs> you have to just deal with me um and um and she uh she she's basically getting herself ready for an interview 80s style you know what i'm saying <laughs> and uh and uh she um she's running late she's got a slightly beaten up car or whatever she gets to the the interview at the nursing home and I put here gets the job immediately, eighties style as well. And then, um, and then, as part of the interview, she's getting a tour of this home, and she's being taken through um, a gaggle of oldies. And these oldies are suddenly in the main um, kind of little, um, you know, reading slash gaming area or whatever. Uh, they're, they're all crowded around a piano, and there's an old fella tinkling away on 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 the ivories. And um, the the manager of the home says, "Oh, that's that's just Sam. He's our oldest resident." And there's a little twinkle in Lena slash Siggy's eye, I said here, um, as, as she looks across at Sam. And then basically this first episode, it just follows um, Sigourney Lena's sort of early days in this job. She befriends a couple of residents um, and, and she's sort of circling the character of Sam here, which is played by the, the original pianist from, from the movie. Um, and then uh, she finally gets a moment with our legendary old pianist, 
Um, and, you know, Sam nearly pushing 100 here. Like, you know, he's really probably early 90s, if not mid. Um, but he had, he's articulate. He has all his marbles, oozing charisma still, and a bit of old Phil and cheek. I haven't put any lines here or anything, but just imagine him being awesome. Um, and then uh, three quarters of the way, just before the end of the episode, really, um, you know, Sigourney Lena lets on to Sam that she's actually taken this job deliberately to meet him. She'd heard a lot about him and she'd managed to research and find him after a very, very long search. And um, and Sam just nods before she even gives him a name. He just says, you have your mother's eyes. And uh, and Lena says, do you remember her? And he says, I remember her. And she says, do you remember the song that she loves? You know, and Sam's expression changes. And he says, I haven't played it in 40 years and I won't now. And um, and then uh, Sigourney just says that my father passed away a year ago, but I, I feel something in my story. I feel something is missing. And um, she says, do you know the man that saved them, my parents, who got them to Portugal? And Sam places a frail hand over hers and says, I think some questions are best unanswered. And we get Sigourney going back home. She picks up the phone, calls someone we don't know who's on the end of the line, and just says, I found him. It's definitely him. That's the end of episode one. Oh, sorry, at the end of episode one, sorry, we pan to a picture. It's just the character of Lena as a tiny girl with Victor and, uh, and Ilsa. That's the end of episode one, Sheppy. Oh, that's so juicy. <laughs> episode two starts with uh, Sigourney Lena again still working in the rest home. And um, and she's just sort of on a regular shift. Sam, in, during the shift, seems to be less of his jovial self. Um, there's not the regular sing-song around the piano this morning. Instead, he's looking out of the window wistfully. And, um, and we someone, I think it was somewhere... It might have been Spielberg or something said, Sheppy. One of his favourite shots in Castlevania. It's always stayed with me, this. One of his favourite shots is when we go to the flashback of Paris. Um, I should have said all of this is... Oh, I did the dissolver to cover, didn't I? Yeah, this is all colour. But um, when we go to the flashback in Paris in Casablanca, the camera, like, goes to... Pans into Bogart, then stops, then pans again. And it's like, uh, are we really going to go there? Do you really want to drag up these painful memories? And it's one of his uh, favourite shots. I really like that. So anyway, I've just, nice. I just nicked that again. And I've just gone like with a... We pan to Sam, we stop, then we pan again, and we flash back. And we get the original Sam now, Arthur Dooley Wilson, um, getting himself to Brazzaville in the Congo, probably by plane or whatever. It's 1943. It's, it's war, you know, um, he, he's picked up by uh, Renault um, and, and immediately asks after Rick. I love how you brought Rick in from the shadows. Of course, he always has to come in from the shadows. But anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but he asks after Rick and, um, and Renault just says, oh, you know, Rick, he's still in it for the water. And we sort of see Renault still dabbing like sweat and midges off himself as he's saying that. <laughs> and then basically episode two is predominantly a, kind of a, a whole little cluster of scenes that they filmed um, in the early 50s for the sequel. This is all in black and white. Um, yeah. and, and effectively, it's a, it's a sort of a mini, I don't want to say caper, but, but effectively, it's Sam's been flown in to play for the troops. Um, Rick has organised this for him um, as an opportunity to pull Sam out from the increasingly, host, increasingly hostile um, Casablanca. Um, and um, and there's basically uh, a moment during this sort of collage of scenes where Sam asks Rick about Ilsa, and um, and Sam and, and Rick says, you know, Sam, with the possibility of this world being so fractured, 
how can I think about being to, uh, together with something so impossible? Like, you know, and there's basically maybe a little scene, looks a little mini bits. I want to see some Renault and, you know, Rick fun banter and stuff. And um, anyway, the biggest takeaway uh, from this episode is that Sam and Rick get together through this convoluted way of getting um, Sam into play for the troops, remain together. Um, as they're part of that French resistance and, and at the end of the flashback are kind of still in, in, entrenched in Brazzaville together. We pull back to the present at the end of the episode um, and um, Sigourney Lena is in the home pulling a bit of a night shift. Um, I say night shift, I mean Sam is alone playing on the piano. Most residents have gone to bed. I say it's like 7pm, you know what I mean? They're all... <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, a, and a car pulls up outside the home um, an elderly lady steps out of it. It's only bloody Ingrid Bergman. Um, she enters the home and uh, and Sigourney sort of steps to her and Ingrid Bergman says, you know, Lena, I told you not to pursue this. And, and she turns to Sam, who's sitting at the piano. And Sam, you know, tears well in, starts to play as time goes by. And the two women stand in the home rec room. Sam plays the tune and the episode ends on that moment. Episode three kind of starts with a small time jump. It's only been a couple of days, but it's enough time for Ilsa. She's obviously, you know, stay, sleep, sleeping on Sigourney's couch. Of course she's not. She's a regal lady. She's she's on the bed and Sigourney's on the couch. But anyway, I don't even know. I've even that. Uh, but anyway, but Ilsa is more comfortable. Uh, she's in the home with Sigourney Ilsa. Um, they're playing like checkers with Sam or whatever, you know, but it's quite a nice convivial, jovial moment. Um, I, I put like, you know, at one point, Sigourney Ilsa leaves them, you know, to do some bloody work finally or something before she loses the job she just got. And um, and then um, Sam and Ilsa are suddenly, they, they become closer, they're more conspiratorial. And um, and Sam just says, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about Laszlo. And... Uh, and Elsa says, thank you, Sam. It's, it's all been so long. And uh, Sigourney's in the background, you know, fluffing a cushion or something. And uh, and Sam just says, she hears all Ricks. And Elsa just says, Sam. You know, but she's a bit playful. There's a little playful twinkle there. Uh, yeah. By the way, that's as much as you're getting from me on that one, really, because I, I want to maintain yeah. that sort of enigma around it, whether or not they did or didn't. Um, and, uh, and Elsa just says, so where is he now? When did you last see him? And Sam says, you don't know? And Ilsa says, don't, don't know what? And Sam says, Ilsa, right? And Ilsa just says, well, where is he, Sam? And uh, and Sam just says, we were helping get everyone to shelter during an air raid and a couple of kids fell, fell and he went to help and the shelling, he didn't stand a chance, Ilsa. And, uh, and Ilsa uh, suddenly sort of got very emotional. And she says, well, when, when, when did it happen? And Sam just says, 44. And Elsa just says, so only just after, and Sam just says, you knew how you felt about it. And then Elsa like takes a moment, she goes, where, where is he, Sam? And uh, Sam just pauses and he goes, he's not where he should be. And then we get Casablanca, 1982, very volatile. I did a little bit of a Google to see if there was a specific mm -hmm. moment in time to go back in history to Casablanca Chevy, but bloody hell, loads of people getting killed left, right, and centre. And um, but anyway, still lots of civil unrest in, in Casablanca, and um, and we see um, Ilsa and uh, and Sigourney Lena kind of arrive in Casablanca, essentially at the spot where Rick's bar was, 
Um, it's been converted into another bar, but it's similar, but a hell of a lot rougher. And um, and they're kind of, they basically, the two women are hunting around the bar, looking at, you know, various things, nooks, sills, et cetera, um, a, a, a around the place, bookshelves, whatnot, you know, and, and they spot um, an urn in the corner and Ilsa turns it in her hands, rubs some dust off, off it or whatever, and the initials on the urn are RB. And I've put here maybe, but it's probably too cheesy, but after your uh, whole thing around, he taught her how to play poker and gave her a his look at the UK, maybe this has to be in it, but I put maybe this is too cheesy, but there's possibly a possibility for a mother-daughter adventure scene here where their presence is challenged and um, Ilsa ends up sitting at a poker table um, and deliberately raising the stakes to a point where um, you know the the gentlemen around the table are out of money and they have to add the urn that she's been admiring to the pile and she wins Rick Rick Sashi. Um, but maybe it's too cheap. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> um, and anyway, they're they're at the airport and um, uh, having having won back the ashes and. Uh, Lena says to Ilse, you know, was, was this Rick? Was he my father? And, uh, and Ilse says, Victor was your father, my darling. And, uh, you know, but that can be interpreted, I feel, yeah. as raised you, you know. And, um, yeah. and, then, uh, and then, you know, Lena just says, so who was he? Who was Rick? And uh, Ilse just says, a brave man who we owe everything. She looks at the end and then says to her daughter, the next part I need to do alone. And um, and then we just get this sort of really nice montage of intercuts as Ilsa travels on her own, um, and we get all the the, the romantic moments from um, Casablanca, the hugeness, the scores swelling, um, and Ilsa flies to Paris and gracefully scatters Rick's ashes into the River Seine, um, and then when she's done that, she goes back to her hotel room, calls um, Sigourney Ilsa, who's back at the home, and just says to her, "It's done, darling." And um, Sigourney Ilsa um, puts down the phone, goes to Sam, who's still up. <laughs> it's way past his bedtime at 7.15 p.m. And, uh, and uh, anyway, but um, and, and uh, he's just tinkling on the piano. And she says, she whispers to Sam, you know, and we assume it's obviously what she's just told him. Um, and Sam stops playing the piano, smiles ruefully, closes the piano lid, gets up and walks to bed. And we get a slow fade to black and then a slow fade up to the final piece of restored footage and we um get um you know it's a quite a clipped piece Sheppy. i'm seeing this definitely you know filmed circa your own brazzaville as well but um mm. people are fleeing for shelter as bombs are exploding um and um rick sam and renault all helping people um into effectively an underground what probably was you know a french resistance shelter but they're trying to get as many people as they possibly can in there um, and then Rick looks up into the middle distance in the sky. Um, there's more planes advancing on the horizon. Um, and a couple of kids are running towards them. They're probably like three blocks, 400 yards away or whatever. Um, and one of the kids trips and twists their ankle. And Rick turns to um, Renault and Sam and says, there's more planes. We've got to help those too. And uh, Renault says, Blaine, this is no time to grow a backbone. And Rick smiles and says, if I sprain anything, I'll call for backup like that. And um, he goes, I'll, I'll be right back. Don't worry. And Renault just says, Rick, please. She's gone, Rick. You don't need to prove anything to anyone here. And Rick looks at Sam and then at Renault and says, Louis, she hasn't gone anywhere. And he thumbs his chest, winks, 
and runs towards the kids and we just fade out and then that's it before the bombs. Oh, I mean, God, amazing. You know, that must have been nominated for some Emmys or something. <laughs> I think we were overly harsh on it to begin with. Uh, that, that, that when it came out, you know, people might have forgotten about it quite quickly and it has sort of a falcon crest sort of thing about it. But ultimately, no, I think that that did all right. That got at least several noms and maybe like best supporting actor for the for the new sound. But yeah, that was great. Um, beautiful actually, Really yes, proper. I love the romance more. I've got to be honest, if you if you said to me, like, what Jimmy well, you did say to me, Jimmy, it was great, a Casablanca sequel. What I would love is, you know. My dream for a Casablanca sequel is for you and me to be locked in a bunker and just come up with your five movies, six movies. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, just to write The Adventures of Rick and Renault. That's the bit that, honestly, as a viewer, really tickles my fancy. And I want the banter and the interplay and the espionage and the intrigue and the war stuff. And for whatever reason, I just lent into the romance of the original. But, you know, but I, I feel like, um, yeah, we, we, we both went in different directions and that makes me Yeah. Happy. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me happy too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, if we get into that bunker and get out those six films, then I'm sure the romance will be much higher and it will all be like the beautiful flowery taint of Jimmy will wash <laughs> off. And I, I think that's absolutely lovely. So let's let's get on to that immediately. <laughs> Jimmy, an absolute joy. Wonderful. Uh, just again, that was that I, I really enjoyed it, um, Young so. Oh, so thanks for setting it, Sheppy. I was intimidated by that. I, I dropped you that text, didn't I, saying, like, you know, it's one thing bloody trying to think of funny lines to a curb or whatever, and then, like, it's another trying to think, how do you build on a classic where every line is a classic and everything as well? It's very tricky. But, no, it was, yeah. it was fun, Sheps. Thanks, man. And, um, nice. Well, if you ever try and come up with something iconic, you make the Terminator 3 mistake, and then it's like, talk to the hand, and you're like, ah, oh, no. So, yeah, you, you must never try um, and figure out what's going to be popular uh, and what will happen when you come out. So, hooray, I say, Jimmy, hooray. Nice, uh, lovely. Nice, nice Sheps. Um, um, but it was enjoyable flicking bogeys at each other. That's all I <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> How long have you been giggling about that? <laughs> about a week. About a week. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. There'll oh. be some titters under the pillow every night, I can assure you. <laughs> okay. So, Jimmy, yes. An order of business. I think the, the one I wanted to lay out, I'm just going to say it because I'm not going to do it, but it was an interesting one. And it was um, because just listening to a different pod about it, the rewatchables one, and they were talking about it and they started pinging around some ideas for sequels for it. And I thought they were quite funny and interesting, but it was just, um, it was big Sheppy, Tom Hanks big. And that, like, oh. yeah, big but, you know, but like, you know, the, uh, but yeah, and I thought that was quite an, an interesting one to play around with. Yeah. Like, you know, what happens next in that world? It grows and, up. And he looks like Tom Hanks. So does everyone like his mum say, oh my God, you've grown into the man who kidnapped you. What sort of <laughs> psycho shit is this where he's that far impregnated into you? And I'll Absolutely. never forget that face. And then yeah, also then on said, the flip side, the lady who slept with the 13-year-old, what happens to her next? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she goes off the rails. Turns into a real James Mason. 
you always be trying to find that one first true, and it's him. Oh uh, no, gutted. Yeah, I mean, that, is, <laughs> uh, that would be my sequel. Is that it's yeah, it's the dark shit where yeah, and then the mum starts to remember little things like I am your ma, I am your son ma. You know when she's you know in the underwear at the beginning, and she starts to remember that it's all been lost in the moment. And you know years later, twenty ten, well not even like what. 15 years later, and he looks just like Tom Hanks did in 1988. And she's like, what the fuck? And it's all about that. And it's kind of Twilight Zone and fucked up. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. And, and, and it sort of goes deeper into that universe of like the, the Make-A-Wish Zoltan. And it's like, what is the power behind that? It sort of taps into this sort of like Richard Kelly, Donnie Darko, wider universe, Stranger Things, Cosmic Realm sort of thing. And it gets fucking hardcore. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. And I think it's called bigger. <laughs> I had a sweet little number in mind, you know, where maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't even have an idea. That's amazing, Sheppy. I can't counter that. It's beautiful. Um... <laughs> All right, Sheps. Well, look, here's one for you. I uh, that 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 we will. You and I probably would have had this marked as a master one, but I say let's whip off the elastoplast and go for it. Um, let's just say the um, the the hob has been uh, ignited, the match has been struck, the uh, the thermostat has been uh, activated, the heat is on, Sheffy. The heat is on, um, and. Uh, I'm thinking we should go from uh, Hawaii and do the short skip to the West Coast to Beverly Hills and um, see what we can do with Axel Foley. Um, now, we will cover how seminal this is to us in, this, in the order of sequels, no doubt, in some detail, as we both have a psychiatry session next time. But... Um, but uh, I'm going to say to you, you have carte blanche here, Sheps. I say that as an A or B, which is to say, you can either do a new Beverly Hills Cop 3, or you can just build on the canon and do Beverly Hills Cop 27 like we did as kids or whatever. Right. You know? So like, you, you do what you need to do with it. You know, I, I okay. think I'm going to do a three. I think I want another three. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's... since there is a Beverly Hills Cop four um, coming, it might as well. That, yeah, I'll, I'll do a three as well. You know, late eighties, early nineties, something turns to three. Something that can't exist now anyway, so there's no chance of copyright infringement. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm up for it, Jimmy. That's the heat is my on. My second Eddie Murphy movie in three pitches. That's, uh, that's quite something. That's true. I love <laughs> it. Well, look at that. Well, he should have been in Casablanca too. That's Mr. Trick. <laughs> going to be Sam's nephew. He, or, or just him in his nutty professor suit could have been Sam. Total. <laughs> really badly dashed. No one knows what. Really. So, sure. Uh, well, I can't wait for that, Jimmy. Yes. Yes, indeed. And in terms of closing this out Sheps I don't really uh I don't know well I know exactly what needs to be said it's just how we get there really um <laughs> well I've been on less arduous journeys but none spring to mind 
<laughs> you know what, Sheppy? I think this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Was that from, from a film or something? <laughs> We'd love to hear from you, so do feel free to reach out to us at shoulderspod.com. Uh, let us know any sequels you'd like us to do. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>